0: Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by the one and only Cindy Ashton. Cindy, welcome. Hello, Amy. I'm super excited to be here. Cannot wait to dive into the why. I know, right? It's it's a really great concept, question, way of living. So what does the why
1: mean for you? The why for me is that as long as I'm still breathing, then I'm not done on this planet. So I'm going to take you back to when I was 13 years old and why my why to live every breath is so important. So when I was 13, I was in the hospital and I had a roommate, another, you know, bedmate waiting for surgery And we had both been through the same thing. We had both been born with heart failure. We had had multiple heart surgeries. We both were told we weren't going to survive. And we really bonded immediately because we had the same trajectory. And we would sit there all day and talk about our dreams and talk about what we were going to accomplish. And she was going to be the greatest heart surgeon in the world and solve all heart problems and I was going to go sing and act and dance for the world and make people happy and heal them with my performing and we made that pact and then I got released from the hospital and a few months later when I was 14 I was readmitted and I kept saying hey to the nurses where's Stephanie where's Stephanie I gotta see my gal because we were like staples at the hospital of sick children in Toronto we were like the nurses knew us because we were ending out there all the time and a nurse pulled me aside and she told me that Stephanie didn't make it. And in that moment, two things happened. The first is the guilt and the shame and the anger of, I don't understand why it was her and not me. But the bigger thing that has been my why my entire life has been, if I'm still breathing, I'm not done. If you, the listeners are, not, are still breathing, you're not done. So, my why is the fact that I'm still breathing. And as long as I'm breathing, my mission is incomplete.
0: So, you've been fighting for your, your health your entire life. Yeah. And how does that change the way that you approach each day?
1: Radically different than the normal human being. Until I would say COVID hit, because I think COVID's a little like living with chronic illness. Um, So, I have now, I'm 45. So, it's now been 31 years since my last heart surgery. I have not needed a fourth one. How it changes my everyday is that every day of my life, I understand the preciousness of life. And I think until COVID hit, not everyone got that, they took it for granted. People took toilet paper for granted. We need something funny at this point. People took toilet paper for granted. Um, (laughs) We took each other for granted. We took our planet for granted. Um, When you're born ready to die and you spend your childhood being told you're not going to survive, and then you do survive and you're going to be told that you still have the rest of your life on medication and unable to do this and unable to do that, it gives you, uh, you either kill yourself or you fight. And for me, every day I have I have very strict routines that I go through to ensure that my health is the best I could possibly have it. So I have my daily yoga and meditation. Um, the minute that shit comes up, I am getting help for that shit so that I can stay mentally strong, so that I could be emotionally clear. Um, I am the one before COVID that would go out to dinner with people and be asking the waiter or the waitress a million questions about what's in the food and everybody else on the table is very uncomfortable. But for my entire life, it has been how, what can I do on a daily basis to ensure that I never need another heart surgery and beyond that, that I can go beyond what doctors said I could. You know, go beyond. They said I would never, I would be on medication for life. I have been medication-free for 30 years. Because of all the trauma to my body, and I've had fibromyalgia. I have never taken medication from it. I have managed it through yoga and meditation and the foods I eat and getting help whenever I need it from any emotional or mental issues that come up because we all have it. So when COVID hit... Because before COVID, I would put boundaries. I would talk about when I need to be in bed to sleep, when I need to do this. And people are like, oh, but you look fine. Or, oh my God, I saw you on stage performing. You have so much energy. And they don't know what it really took for me to have that energy on stage because I'm managing heart illness every day. But it's been interesting because since COVID hit, suddenly the rest of the world is starting to understand what it like it's like to understand how precious life is to feel like everything is out of control because when you live with illness chronically, it is out of control. You don't know when it's going to be a good pain day or a bad pain day. You don't know when you're going to have bursts of energy and can get and can do work a lot and time periods of your life and you can't. And COVID is basically like living with chronic illness. It's people are uncertain about their health. They're uncertain about their work, if they're, you know, if they're going to be able to pay their bills, Um, they're uncertain about their safety. I mean, literally people, people are so overstressed. People are seeking connection. And I'm going to tell you, when you live with chronic illness, it's hard to connect because the majority of people don't understand what that's really like to literally be managing illness every moment of your life. So it's been interesting because 2020 was a disastrous year for most. And I feel like 2020 was the first time in my life where I felt understood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and where I felt like I put a boundary on and not have somebody go, I'm sorry, you look fine. Or I just saw you on stage. You look great on stage. You know, to not be questioned like I was before, to not be, you look fine or don't be a drama queen. To not have to deal with that in the last year has been precious. <laughs> not that I wish COVID on anybody, not that the situation is easy, but I've talked to a lot of other people that I know that are chronically ill and they're like, COVID has been the best thing that happened to them because they're finally getting the love and the compassion that they need because everybody's chronically ill right now.
0: Yeah, and and understanding what it's like to to almost have this hidden illness to to not see just because you can't see that there's something wrong doesn't mean that there isn't. And, and this is, this is something, as you say, that you've been living with, with 30 for 30 years. And people are just now putting on those same sort of glasses and seeing from your
1: perspective. I've been living with it since birth because I was born with heart failure. Um, You know, it, it's true because people are now getting it because you can't see COVID, but you put your mask on because you know, it's out there. Or you don't because you're in denial or because you don't believe science is real, um, which is fine. Everyone's everyone's going to deal with stuff the way they they need to deal with it. It's not my job to judge. It's my job to just be as much love as I possibly can. But it's true. Like right now, we have this invisible thing that's looming over our heads that we hope a vaccination is going to fix. Yeah.
0: So let's take you back to... Maybe it's 14. It might be earlier when you you had the moment, obviously, of losing a a good friend and and your pal on the ward and, and sort of a soulmate. Essentially, you were sort of together. And you talked about the guilt and the shame and the anger that you experienced. What did you then turn that into and what has
1: it led you to do? It's interesting because that was a huge instigator. But even since I was cognizant of being alive, you know, at three or four, Um, I've been a fighter for as long as I can remember. And it's so funny because last night I had a dream that Madonna came to talk to me, and this relates because Madonna was my hero growing up. She was different, she was unconventional, she pushed boundaries, she spoke her mind, she challenged. Um, I don't think that people realize how much she's actually done for women's rights. But it's interesting because I still remember as a child falling in love with Madonna because she was different like me. But I still remember, like, I was always that kid. Like, when people say, oh, Cindy, you're such a great singer... Um, when did you know you are going to sing? And I'm like, when did I not know? I don't remember my earliest memory. I would be going and finding sequins in my mom's closets or anything sparkling and putting it on and going into the living room and putting the record player on and putting Helen Reddy on and jumping on the table and dimming the lights and singing, I am woman, hear me roar. And I would do this imagining that had millions. Like it was never, um, and I was always the fighter. Like I, I still remember as a kid, I found a bird Um, that was on the floor and I picked up the bird and I took it to the local animal hospital and I was seven or eight and I'm like, I have no money, but we need to save the bird. You know? (laughs) And and the veterinarian was very nice about it and helped save the bird at no cost for this cute little seven-year-old with big hair like Annie. I still remember at 11 or 12, I was horrified by the rainforest and I grabbed a bunch of friends and we just went out there and we raised enough money to buy 11 acres of rainforest. Like I have always been extraordinarily purpose-driven. Either, when you were born with a 20% chance of living like I was, you either have to fight as hell and you keep that fight going. And I've had to learn by the way, in the last you know, 10, 15 years to learn not to fight so hard and reprogram myself. But, you know, you either fight or you die. Um, but when the Stephanie thing happened at thirteen, fourteen, that was, that just solidified my resolve on a level that's everybody stand the F back. <laughs> so this purpose that you talk about, being
0: purpose-driven and to express, essentially, your inner truth, how yeah. did that manifest? What, Where did you sort of take that journey? It's
1: three it's three areas that since I was a childhood, it's the performing and then I'll go into more details, but overall it's the performing, it's the teaching, and it's the activism. So up until a few years ago, I was raising tons of money hundreds of thousands of dollars for charities I was out and volunteering and to the point where I got awards from the U.S. president and the queen of England um, my work was so extensive and then the last few years I've been dealing with some health stuff so I haven't been doing my volunteer work anymore but I'll get back to it um, and the health stuff is not related to the heart that's been coming up, which is fascinating. Um, and now I'm near the end of that, which I'm grateful for. Um, so that, the activism stuff was there. I mean, as a performer, it was always there. It was always any opportunity to be on front of camera, on front of, on stage. I still remember when I was 13, I got my first, you know, interview in the newspaper. and I And I didn't even try to get that. It's like, it was destined. By the time I was 19, I already had earned an apprenticeship with Live End of Canada. They were doing pre-Broadway shows up in Toronto. And so at 19, I was already working with Broadway producers and directors and all these people. And I was chosen, eight of us were chosen out of hundreds that applied. You know, it just, it was, it wasn't a choice. And that was really hard for me because the teaching fell into my lap. I did it to, I started teaching, which we now call my being a trainer and a strategist as a presentation trainer and strategist. Um, but I, I started doing that job because I wanted to pay my my um my university bills and working at a grocery store for 585 an hour wasn't getting it. And I ended up falling in love with teaching and then ended up doing some educational consulting and, you know, and continued on teaching presentation skills now for almost 25 years. So I don't feel like anything I've obviously made a lot of choices in my life. But the activism, and the activism actually shows up on my TV show, Cindy Uncorked. Um, You know, I was talking about trauma and women's vaginas before Trump came in and had a lot of death threats and hate mail for talking about such things. And suddenly Trump came into office and suddenly people were interested in that, you know, and the whole Me Too stuff. And suddenly that episode became popular. So, I mean, I've always been doing the social issues. I've always been performing and I've always been teaching is just those and whenever I try to veer off my life isn't complete so there was never going to be that sort of traditional route of I'm
0: going to wait tables and be spotted as a star you just got on and just threw yourself
1: (laughs) center stage yeah and I think if I look back at my life my biggest regret is that I had the opportunities for my performing career. And let's be honest, my performing resume is excellent, but it's nowhere near where I wanted to achieve by age 45. But I, I had too many moments despite my resolve and despite the Stephanie story and everything else where I didn't trust my own voice and I didn't think I was good enough. So for example, when I worked with those Broadway performers and directors, at the end of that summer, my apprenticeship program, they said, hey, Cindy, you've been working so hard for us. Can you sing for us? And I think I sang don't cry for me, Argentina. And at the end of the audition, they were all like whispering flabbergasted. And at that point, I didn't even have that much training. I had one year of, you know, singing, dancing, acting college behind me, but the talent was there. And I remember one of the casting directors looking at me after them conferring, they said, we have a show on Broadway right now that we could put you in chorus. Do you want it? And in that moment I said, well, I, I need to go to university and my parents and you know, and I need to get an education. And I gave up my Broadway dream and I still haven't achieved Broadway. And now I have been in major musicals. I have starred in major musicals, but they weren't in New York. They were in other parts of the world. Um, at 20 years old, my dad was a limo driver he had the president of Sony music in his car. And he said, Hey, you should hear my, my, my daughter sing. And at the time, I wasn't overly trained since then I've gotten a ton of opera training, have done a bit of opera and musical theater. Um, but I sounded, I, I was able to belt out those Celine Dion, the power of love. Like I was belting that shit out. <laughs> and uh, my dad played him some stuff and he was like, no, keep playing. I want to hear this. And my dad called me. And he says, the president of Sony wants to meet you. And I and I took the card and I never made that call because I didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't feel like my singing voice was good enough. I didn't think I was pretty enough and I wanted to be better and I betrayed myself. And I can give a million. And like I said, I have a really strong resume but I've known since I was ki- a kid that I was gonna be famous. And I have achieved a certain level of celebrity Um, And to me, celebrity is about doing good. It's not about that and I'm not going to name names but people who were using it to say oh look at my ass look at my tits look at my no for me celebrity is about being the full embodiment of myself and having an impact with my voice and the music I write and the shows that I produce and you know and the and the shows that I get cast in and my work even as a speaking trainer and as a presentation trainer everything has to do about revealing truth and being your best self so when i say famous as celebrity i do mean an a lister in hollywood but I mean it as somebody who is like a Meryl Streep who's doing good. Somebody like a Barbara Streisand or a Bette Midler who has a voice that's helping to change the world. So I've known that as a kid. And I've definitely been at the Oscars and the Grammys interviewing celebrities on the red carpet. So I've gotten close to it. So I'm a certain level of celebrity, but nowhere near an A-lister. And, you know, and I've denied myself that level of power because the opportunities have been there and I haven't fully taken them, um, and trusted my own voice, which is crazy because all I do all day is work with clients and help them to trust their voice and step into their celebrity, step into their business in a different way, step into their power. And, and I'm in my power on stage on screen, but I haven't let myself get to that level of success. If that makes any sense. It does make sense. And now I'm finally doing it. Like now I'm really stepping in actually now I'm finally doing it um yeah it's interesting do you trust your own voice now 100 percent. a year ago I was starting to get there now I'm like yeah totally and do you yeah. think that that the Took 45 years
0: <laughs> join the midlife beginners club welcome welcome right <laughs> Hey well you know it's funny you're talking about your dad and being a limo driver and i'm just thinking this whole star is born moment you know where you know you're you're his daughter his fabulous singing daughter and he's very proud of you and and yet you didn't make that call
1: and you don't regret that though do you or do you there's no point in being in regretful and what i and what i've realized over my time is that if I was famous at my t- when I was 20, I wouldn't have the impact that I do now. Because when I was 20, I was a highly traumatized person. I spent most of my teenage years cutting myself, self mutilating, hating myself, not believing I was worth anything. And for me to be famous at 20 and have that level of influence, if I'm gonna be super famous, I wanna be able to have a voice that changes the world and heals the world and brings the world some laughter because God knows we need it right now.
0: <laughs> I was watching one of your videos the other day where you were, I think it was actually, might have been last Wednesday. And obviously, it's been some recent horrendous events. And, and by the time we're recording it, hopefully, it's all sort of boiled down in, in, in the States now. But it, it has been a traumatic time, not just with COVID, but just with all the different events that have
1: happened over the last few months. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so clear that it's my purpose and it has been since I was a kid to use my voice to heal and bring people laughter. Um, but yeah, last week was the attack on Capitol Hill. And the next day I recorded a quick, you know, breathing meditation and singing amazing grace with non-Christian words. Cause I wanted everybody to feel, I changed a couple of the words just to be inclusive of all people. Um, but yeah, like I've known my mission my whole life and I have stepped into it somewhat, but I'm fully like stand back, everybody, because here I am. <laughs> so there's, there's this interesting concept that
0: you were born fighting for your life, born, as you said, ready to sort of die, essentially. And yet, you know that every day there is this big mission that you have and and the, the work will not be sort of finished until that last Breath that you take. Yeah. So, what's next? What's what is your what's on the plan for you? What is your vision and your mission?
1: Yeah. So everything that I do has to do with voice. Everything that I have to do with has to do with voice. So while my clients, my presentation skills clients, think that they're hiring me because I'm helping them with their speaking voice or body language, especially now how to communicate on camera on video. Half of them realize very quickly, the ones that are open, that they get a deeper healing. So as a presentation, because I'm gonna go through the different roles of what I do, because this all has to do with voice. As a presentation trainer, for those that are willing I, I am able to get to their deeper truth and help them to voice that to the world within their business. And so those, so I have a lot of business owners who I can tell that they wouldn't be ready for that level. So I'll help them with their messaging, their storytelling, they'll go out, they'll be able to double their sales, they're happy as a clam. And I'm happy to do that because their work is important and I won't take on somebody whose work isn't healing the world or helping the world in some way. Um, and But then I have that other half of clients where I can say to them, you know, have you asked your voice permission? And they would start crying. Um, and I can go there with them. And we can talk about, you know, a little bit about the psychology around why they're not letting their voice out. Or is this really the story you want to tell? Is this really an alignment or is it coming from ego? Or is this story the story, or let's find the story that's coming from truth. So with those clients, they end up elevating in ways I never thought possible because I help them to align with their truth. Um, so there's that part in terms of the mission is to help people with my TV show, Cindy Uncorked. And even now I have my, I have an acting coach and I'm working with who is an A-lister right now in Hollywood. I met him at the Oscars last year, um, and we're working because I'm ready to start auditioning in the next few few months. And we're really focusing on not going for every audition, but what work is being put out there that's about social justice, that's about helping the world heal, because those are the roles I want to do. I want to be part of films that either lift people up and make them laugh and release or be part of films that change the world. And so we're really looking at shaping my career as an actor and as a singer in that way. As my own personal performer um last year 2019 i started writing a one woman show called liberate your voice and i have the book called liberate your voice um which is my own journey of living with chronic illness but throughout this one woman show that i wrote i relate it back to that we are all living with something that's invisible that's holding us back from truly liberating our voices and I performed it in January in New York City. It got rave reviews. I think, I think it was a good start. I think it's a little messy in places. So at, I'm really excited because I'm about to announce. So I think when this podcast is live, you're going to probably um it will probably be announced by then. But we are going to redo the show. We're going to make it tighter. We're going to make it better because of what's happened in the next year or in the last year. People having a voice more than ever is important. So we're going to reshape the a little bit to really be in the times. It felt like it was in the times in January, but it could be even tighter. Um, and we're going to perform it live in New York city for a very small social distance audience and live stream it end of April. Um, so I'm really excited about that because the, the, everything has an opportunity and the opportunity is that instead of me just continually performing in new york i can actually live stream this show now which is really exciting so i've also been writing a lot of music and a lot of social justice songs and a lot of songs around getting your voice out to the world so as I'm working on my one woman show and bringing that up, I'm working on the songs. So I have a super full life, (laughs) you know, between my personal clients and then my own artistry um, that I can manage it all. And I love all of it, but my ultimate mission is to help people to speak the truth, but speak that truth from love, alignment, kindness, and to help people really be able to listen and connect on a deeper level and to release their sorrows. So I can do that through healing and comedy through my music and through performing and acting. And I could do that by helping other people be that presenter and be that person expressing their truth.
0: I love that. And I'm just going to go back to something you sort of just casually dropped in that you won awards from the president and the queen of England. Please share. <laughs> it's so weird to me. I just don't get it. I'm like, why? This is not something I was looking to get. So what were they? Share them with us.
1: Yeah. Um, you could see the queen's medal behind me. So they were both for my lifelong dedication to humanitarian work and raising money and volunteerism. So the US president one, I was a little surprised at because I got it within a year and three months of immigrating to the country. Now in that first year and three months of being in the country, I did a heck of a lot. Like I was on stages with some of the biggest names on the planet and touring, but I was out in the community and helping the homeless and mentoring this. And like, I was hardcore and I was surprised that I got it that fast, but um, the representative of Obama said, no, we've been watching you. For somebody who's been in this country for only a year and three months, it's remarkable what you've done. And we really, we really wanna move this along and give this to you. And I was like, okay, um, Canada makes sense because I've done so much work in Canada, my home country. But again, like it's, it's an honor, but I don't, I don't, I wasn't looking for that. And I'm, I'm still now a little bit uncomfortable that I've been given those awards. Cause that's not, I don't do that work for, you know, the fame of it, if that makes sense. So share which awards that you loved winning. My telly award. That was really big for me. And I didn't know what a telly award was. And I didn't realize how prestigious this was until I won it. So when I decided to do my TV show, Cindy Uncorked, which talks about social issues in a very real and raw way and tackle stuff in a way that makes people uncomfortable sometimes, um, like the vagina episode. <laughs> Apparently, that's a dirty word. Um, it was interesting because I had done this one episode on body shaming. Um, it was season one, episode four, and I had literally raised money to do this. I self-produced, and then I found a, a, T, a, a TV network that would do distribution. And I remember people were like, well, this isn't a legitimate TV show. You self-produced, you da-da-da. Even though I was picked up by a network, so it was must have been good enough, but I had a lot of hate coming at me. But there was this one episode that I did that I still think I'm absolutely nuts for doing on body shaming, where I decided in the filming... To go in front of a live audience and take off all my clothes except for just a little itty bitty bra and a little bitty underwear, as small as you could possibly get that were nude color. And show off all my scars from all my heart surgeries and, and on the chest and on the back and have a real conversation that body shaming doesn't just happen to people that are overweight, it happens to everybody. And then the rest of the episode interviews people, you know, an Afri- a Jamaican-American man, um, a woman who's, who was shamed for having breasts that were too big. When I interviewed Lori about that, it healed me because I was always criticized as an actor for having boobs that were too small. And I always felt like I wasn't fully a woman. So to hear it from the other side, From somebody who was quote unquote too big. So um, somebody who was born a man was transgender, had sex change, showed up. She talked about, you know, her body shaming. Like we had a variety of amazing stories that body shaming happens to all of us. Too skinny, too skinny, too fat, too big, too small, too male, too female, too black, too white. And my my publicist, Kelly Bennett had said, Cindy, your body shaming episode, you should submit that for a telly award. And I'm like, I don't even know what this stupid award is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I submitted it and months goes by and, and, and she goes, Oh my God, you won bronze. I said, Oh, that's cool. She says, do you understand that gold went to CBS news and, and, um, and Silver went to CBS Interactive for the Caitlyn Jenner story and you got third place. Your little show that you think that everybody shamed you for, that everybody hated you for. You're that episode one. And it makes me want to cry right now. And that's probably one of the, because I don't normally care about awards, but that's, So if anybody's actually watching this, you can see the award behind me. It kind of looks like an Oscar. Maybe that will be my next thing I get. My acting needs to be better. I'm working on it. That's why I have an acting coach. But until today, I'm still emotional about it for so many reasons, partially because that episode really changed people. Like people were writing me. People still, um, when they find out about the telly, they look up the episode. They still say, Cindy, that episode changed me. It healed me. Um, It gave so many people a voice. And it meant something because I was so hated and so shamed for self-producing and not being legitimate for not having a network pick me up. And yet I won against one of the biggest, one of the top three networks in the, you know, um, it it gave me legitimacy. And it was such a, and it was such a, a lesson for everybody listening. Don't let anybody take away your brilliance. Just don't. You know, I let it hurt me for so long. And I was embarrassed to even show the TV show because there was flaws in it that everybody had to point out. But at the end of the day, what really matters is the impact that that episode has. And now you're making me, now that we're talking about this, I should probably put the episode back out so people, it's still out there. People can still go and watch it on Roku or Apple or whatever. Um, But it's... It's just a message for everybody that if you're getting a lot of hate, you actually might be doing something right. Listen to the voices that matter, which is number one, your own. And number two, when you go through months of vetting to get that award and you win against the top of the world in this country or in the same category, that means something. So I'm listening
0: to what you're saying and you're talking about how you've healed people, how you've been, you've given them a voice and you've been that advocate for the underdog or for all the different representatives that, that you're sort of helping in, in a one particular show. And and you talk about that if you're doing something right, you get a lot of hate coming at you, but there, there is a, an enormous amount of hate at the moment in the, in the States. I mean, a disproportionate amount of it. What can, what can be done to, to sort of change those ways?
1: This is a tough one. I think that until people are willing to do their inner work and deal with their trauma and everybody has trauma, hence the vagina episode. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, seriously, the problem is, is that people have to be right. And as long as we are stuck in our heads about having to be right. And that was the whole thing around Cindy Uncorked is that I don't need to be right. But debate with me, but debate with me from love and kindness and fact checked. You know, like I fact checked everything before I do anything. And if I don't, and somebody calls me out and I make that mistake, I say, you know what? I'm sorry, I was wrong. But until at the end of the day, we need to stop the need to be right, stop the need to fight and defend and start asking deeper questions because those people who are fighting, there's something deeper within them that's damaged and that's hurt and that needs a voice, you know? It was interesting, let me tell you a little story. So I I was traveling through the South, I was driving through the South, um, and it was really interesting, especially being Canadian, we don't have a gun culture in Canada. And up in New York, there's no gun culture, I've never seen a gun store. But as soon as I entered Georgia, um, I saw a sign for a gun convention, five minutes later driving, I see a gun store, it's five minutes later and I'm like, okay, these people are a little nuts about their guns. And I automatically went to judgment. And as I was driving throughout the South, all I saw is gun stuff and it made me really uncomfortable. And when we're really uncomfortable, we become judgmental. And I decided to use the opportunity to preach, to do what I preach and ask questions instead to understand. And it was interesting. So as I traveled through Georgia, Tennessee, Louisiana, I, I went through all the states across the South. Um, by Arizona, the gun thing started to kind of calm a little bit. Um, but I'm still not comfortable with guns. I still don't fully understand it. But it was interesting because I'm going to tell you about one conversation that I had, because I got a lot of different answers. And part of it is it's just, it's what you know. This is what they're born in, What this is what they know. This is it's just, it's the culture that they have but I would ask deeper questions. And I had this one conversation where I would ask people, yeah, I'm just traveling through and being Canadian. I'm kind of surprised at all the gun stores. Do you have a gun? Like I was nice about it, but I'm like, why do you have a gun? Why do you feel like you have a gun? And I would ask these questions and one woman and many people would say, because I'm afraid of black people, which was really bizarre to me because especially you know, being raised in the most multicultural city in the world, Toronto, and then living in New York, I'm like, oh, they're just people. <laughs> they're like people like you and I. Um, but again, it's really easy for us to get up in arms. But if I get an, up in arms, it's going to shut somebody down. So I would just ask deeper questions. I'm like, oh, I'm curious. Um, tell me more. So that's, I'm just using this one person. And she says, well, you know, I'm really afraid because da-da-da-da-da-da. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And I would just let her talk, let her feel like she was heard cause everyone wants to feel heard and seen. And at the end I started, I said, I said, Oh, you know, um, the reason why I'm on this little tour right now is because, you know, I'm healing from surgery and I have this wonderful man in my life, one of my bestest friends. And when I came out of surgery, he took me into his home and, and he had servants, like not servants. He had like his, his groundskeepers checking on me and, and she goes, wow, what a wonderful man. I said, he is a wonderful man. Would you like to see a picture of us together? And I pull out a picture of a tall black Jamaican man and me. And she goes, oh, right. And I said, yeah, it's really amazing. There's so many wonderful people in the world, don't you think? And she goes, yeah. And I said, I'm really sad that you've had that experience with black people because, you know, they're just people, right? So at that point, it gave me the opening to talk about that. And then I kept asking and then she goes, well, I also have to protect myself from Arabs and I'm actually Arab. So, which is fine. And I don't get triggered by it because, but I mean, Cindy Ashton is not the name I was born with. Um, I was bullied heavily throughout, you know, my childhood for, you know, being Palestinian, I'm Canadian born Palestinian, Lebanese background. So I was bullied heavily and being called a terrorist and all this other stuff, especially because it was during that first war, um Iraqi war and whatever. So, when I was 16 I changed my name I gave myself a nice English name um I bought myself white privilege and I'm white looking so I could and you know and that's that's it's you know so again I could have gotten triggered but I didn't because I've been dealing with the whole you know Arab suck kind of bullshit um so I said that's really I'm curious about that tell me more right and I said well I'm really I said I said I said do you consider me a terrorist? She goes, no, of course not. I said, I'm Palestinian. She goes, oh, you can't be. Where's that thing you put on your head? And I was like, okay. So again, like it's a, it's an opportunity for me to keep asking questions and educate instead of getting triggered. But I've also done a lot of inner work on myself, which goes back to, we all need to be doing inner work on ourselves. But it was interesting because we had a really interesting conversation. And I, and I just said, you know, yeah, some people are terrorists, but that's 0.00001% of the population. If you went to Israel slash Palestine, you know, and met my family, you know what they're going to beat you with? Food. It's ridiculous. They're going to come in and you're going to have like 10 platters of food and you're going to be forced to eat all of it. They're going to force you to eat a lot of food. They're going to slobber all over you and give you a lot of hugs. Like that's the Arab culture. They're very generous. They're loving. They're very family, you know? And, you know, so it was interesting, but. It was very interesting because I don't know that I changed her mind that day, but I think that she shifted even one inch. But if I would have went at her, it would have not solved any problems, right? And that's the problem is that we have to find a way to ask questions and seek understanding and use story as a way for people to have revelations, but we have to get people's guard down and make them feel like they're being heard before they're willing. No one's gonna listen to you if they don't feel like they could trust you and connected and heard. Hence the work I do. And it's not easy because sometimes I just want to smack people, but I'm a pacifist, so I can't do that. (laughs) Just hit a high note instead. I
0: love that you use your humor and your music to take the edge off a situation.
1: I try. (laughs) (laughs) But you
0: really have shown how important it is to liberate your voice and i've absolutely loved having you on the show today cindy it's been fantastic how would people get in
1: contact with you if they want to reach out to you yeah so um cindy ashton.com is for my tv show my performing so you can find the season one episode four on there um you can also find out about my live stream liberate your voice show coming up which now i know i need to have it up on that website. So yeah, so Cindy Ashton is more for my singing, my acting, my TV show. And then for those looking to liberate their voice in terms of being a better presenter, better presence, better sales, better influence, they can go to cindyashtontrains.com. And if they click on video series, I've got a whole free video series on how to really connect and build trust and connection in a a virtual world through, through the power of presentation.
0: Well, I'll make sure all of that is into the show show notes, no problem. I also just wanted to say a huge thank you to Lee Hayes, who brought us together. It's amazing. The wonderful Lee, yes. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Do you have some final words for the audience, please?
1: I do, but first, Amy, I'd like to thank you because you're a gracious host. You're a deep thinker. You're a deep soul. You ask wonderful questions. You're an amazing listener. And although I've never been a client of yours, I am 100% confident. Confident that you are a phenomenal coach, who gets phenomenal results. So, thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. It's really kind. Oh, you may be go blush. <laughs> you may <me> go red. <laughs> thank you. Um, no, you you really deserve it. My greatest wish for everybody is that they learn to be present in who they are, and trust their inner voice and trust their wisdom. You can never go wrong when you trust your inner self. You just can't. You know best within your soul.
0: If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrollinson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.